Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is uh, January the 13th, 2021. Unlucky for some. Very unlucky if you happen to be uh, somebody who uh, booked an Airbnb room in Washington, D.C. Uh, Airbnb, I heard this through Twitter, have canceled all Airbnb uh, reservations for Washington, D.C. I also read this on the Jeff Bezos-owned Washington Post. Uh, The sharing economy then is becoming not only in the sharing economics economy, but the political economy too. And the power of companies like Airbnb to reshape our culture, our politics, and our economy are, of course, profound. It's not just Airbnb, of course, who are reshaping everything. Um, Last month, uh, well, a couple of months ago in the election, uh, Prop 22 passed in California, exempting Uber and Lyft from classifying drivers as employees. So we're seeing the emergence of what we would call a precarious economy, an economy in which people are partially employed by so-called sharing companies like Uber and Lyft. Airbnb is part of this economy too. Not everyone's happy about it. Uh, Uber and Lyft drivers in California are still uh, suing and and demonstrating to to challenge the Prop 22 uh, ballot measure. Uh, This broad reshaping of our economy is being covered and indeed challenged by many writers and thinkers. One person who I think has done a tremendous job thinking and rethinking the nature of this resharing economy is my guest today, Jessica Bruder. She's a very distinguished journalist. She's written about Uber and Airbnb and Amazon. Uh, And many of you, of course, will be most familiar with Jessica because she's the author of Nomadland, uh, one of 2017's most distinguished books. Uh, Jessica, Welcome. Uh, the sharing economy. Uh, you wrote about it in No Man Land. You've written about it uh, in your critical pieces on Amazon and, and, and Uber and Lyft. How profoundly is it reshaping our economy? Oh, incredibly profoundly. Uh, and it's funny, I even bristle at the term sharing economy, because that sounds so warm and fuzzy when really it's an extraction economy. Yeah, I and, mean, I, and I uh, use that term yeah. ironically. I, I don't, I, if, if, if I was writing, I'd put inverted commas around it. Yeah, we've got the air quotes, right? Um, yeah, I mean, gosh, back in 2018, writing about the suicide of Douglas Shifter, who was a, a black car driver in New York, who basically got pushed out by the sharing economy, just kind of trampling the city and transportation stuff. Uh, we've got, you know, the MTA is underfunded now, thanks to uh, the fact that we've allowed Uber and their ilk to run rampant. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's a mess. The bottom line is we have an economy right now where it's so easy to classify somebody as an independent contractor and then completely wash your hands of that person. It reminds me of when Napster would say back in the day, oh, it's just a platform. We're not really responsible for anything that happens on it. Except now what's happening on the platform is people and lives and livelihoods. And, you know, uh, whether you look at a company who's, you know, you don't have to provide health insurance, you don't have to provide paid sick leave, uh, by making somebody an independent contractor and branding them with this, you know, kind of entrepreneurial glow and saying, you have the flexibility to make your own hours. Well, you also have the freedom to starve. So now you know how I feel about that. Freedom, of course, a very American word. Uh, is it fair to say that your work, joining the dots on your work, your focus is on the so-called new economy. Uh, the subtitle of No Man Land, of course, is Surviving America in the 21st Century. Is the key to surviving America, getting proper work, rethinking uh, jobs and, and economic life in this country? Well, absolutely. Uh, and a big part of that, as we all know, is income inequality, which has gotten much worse since I wrote Nomadland, which came out in 2017. Uh, one of the stats I like to look at is the CEO to worker pay ratio, which was really bad. I think it was 240 to one when Nomadland came out. And now as of you know, late 2019, it was 320 to one. Uh, so it's completely nuts. Uh, the other thing I write about, apart from labor and you know, the new economy is actually subcultures. And I find that a really that a ton of interesting communities and people coming together are found if you turn over the rocks of the new economy. And often these communities are created by necessity, whether it's the Somali immigrants who are who are organizing against Amazon in a Minneapolis warehouse, or it's the people I met who've been pushed out of traditional housing and are creating these mutual aid networks on the road. Um, or, you know, just looking at taxi drivers who talk to each other in the, you know, the dispatch lots outside of the airports. For me, it's really, really interesting what kind of community happens in the cracks. Uh, and often it's incredibly resilient and creative by necessity. Um, so I, I try to look at all of that at the same time. I was really struck by, uh, by, by your piece, uh, Driven to Despair, uh, uh, written uh, a couple of years ago about the death of this man, uh, Doug Shifter. Uh, we're quoting his suicide note. He wrote, due to the huge numbers of cars available with desperate drivers trying to feed their families, they squeeze rates to below operating costs and force professionals like me out of business. Uh, they count their money and we are driven down into the streets. Uh, we are becoming homeless and hungry. I will not be a slave working for chump change. I would rather be dead. Of course, he chose, tragically enough, death. How symbolic, how real is the life of people like Doug Shifter? Yeah, absolutely. And Doug, it's interesting, Doug wanted to be a symbol. He left behind more than 50,000 words of columns that he wrote for Black Car News. And, uh, you know, he was an intense writer and a lot of stuff on Facebook. And he really wanted to be Spartacus and lead the revolt. Uh, and when that, that couldn't happen, he kind of seemed to feel that in his death, in a strange way, that might have been the most galvanizing force, uh, which is absolutely tragic. I mean, I, I don't know if your viewers remember, but he was all over the news because he shot himself. Uh, with a shotgun in his party hall. 
and was one of you know, a bunch of suicides. Many of them uh, were taxi drivers who found that the medallions they'd invested in were suddenly worth nothing just because the city hadn't really kept its end of the deal uh, on what the marketplace for people who want to drive would look like. So yeah, the, the Doug Shifter story, that's probably the hardest story I've ever had to write. Just stay, you know, you can't sleep after you've read all those columns and just you're trying to get inside his head. Uh, you can't interview him, obviously, um, but you want to express to people how he felt and what the pressures were. I was struck. One of the things about your piece, which is a must read piece, was his, I wouldn't say his addiction, but his seduction to these self-help books. You note that he was really mm -hmm. influenced by this Many Lives, Many Masters book by somebody called Brian L. Weiss, MD. I haven't read the book. I don't know if you have, but it, it sounds to me like the kind of seductive nonsense that gets sold to people like uh, Doug. And of course, it never works out. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, it's absolutely fair. Um, it's funny. I used to call this weaponized positivity. I've seen in the media lately, people are calling it toxic positivity. But I feel like sometimes self-help is, is filling this void for people, but it's really it's really just empty calories and it is actually preying on people, um, which is a problem. So I, I did listen to the book. I actually drove out to Doug's house, which was heartbreaking. It was abandoned. There was no room for it in the story, but you know, the house was kind of trashed and it was very spooky. And when I was coming back, I actually listened to the audio tape of the book. And again, it, it's a lot of magical thinking. And it talks a lot about reincarnation. It talks about how um, our biggest purpose is to teach. And in a way, it seemed that Douglas thought he was doing just that, that he was going to kind of achieve reincarnation and be in a higher form. And he had some health problems. Of course, that would go away. Um, and that he would teach people by his example. Um, so again, that's, that just really compounds the tragedy. But you see this peddling of kind of fake happiness all over uh, the job market and particularly in the precariat. Uh, yeah, the precariat. I, I mean, yeah. your your wonderful piece, which is included in Nomad Land about, uh, I don't know if I would call them, I hope I won't, not insulting them, an older couple who had done pretty well, owned a McDonald's franchise, and then after the financial crash, went to work at Amazon, you joined them on the floor and the humiliating nature of this work which is made all the more humiliating by the fact that they have to work around this culture of positivity and cheerfulness. The Bezoses of the world, of course, cash in, the multi-billionaires, and these people are driven down deeper and deeper into poverty. Andrew, sorry, we cut out just a, for just a moment there. That was Jeff Bezos uh, interfering, Jessica, with uh, what I know, I know. And He's everywhere, Bezos, leave us he alone. He is as I was saying, as I was saying, one of the things I, I really liked about uh, uh, Nomadland and, and, and some of your other uh, journalism, which is sort of taken from the book, is your coverage of uh, an older workforce of Amazon employees working in the um, in, in what you call the nomadic retiree army. Uh, and, and, and coming back to this issue that you brought up earlier of cheerfulness. It's already humiliating for these older people to be played minimum wage and have to work so hard. And they also have to work within the culture of cheerfulness and positivity. 
you did a little bit of work on the front lines yourself with these people. How offensive is that? Oh, it's it's utterly offensive and it's really, really condescending. Uh, I remember going and finding some old newsletters that were sent to Camper Force, that's the name of the labor unit, sent right. to Camper Force em employees. And they were t talking about Camper Force, the value of friendship and, you know, how it was going to be fun. And, uh, you know, that's just all incredibly twisted. Uh, you you're now showing that picture of Linda May. Uh, she is doing campground hosting, which is another popular job for people who are traveling uh, the country and living out of their vehicles. So campground hosting is really hard. You're basically on site 24-7. Many people get shorted in terms of how many hours they are working and how many they're actually paid. Uh, and on top of that, you know, I know two people who broke a rib on the job. You're part security guard, part cleanup crew. Uh, you're basically doing everything. They make a vacation in paradise. You'll see like gray-haired women on a dappled lake and arm just saying, you know, this is the most fun I've ever had. I feel healthier than I have in months. Um, and again, it's, it's a lot of this garbage, which doesn't reflect the reality of the job. But I think sometimes it makes people feel better, like, like they ha have some agency in doing this. And it's a way they could show something they can show other people like, look, I'm doing this wonderful thing. And at the end of the day, uh, it's the company that's really winning because they get a low wage and very compliant wa uh, workforce and uh, they don't have to treat them all that well. Uh, Jess, we, we, we started this conversation talking about Airbnb. You talked about the growing inequality between a, hiney, a, a tiny handful of technologists and investors um, in this new quote unquote sharing economy and the rest of the labor force. Uh, Airbnb, of course, went public uh, last uh, late last year. Uh, there's stories about how one one uh, investor, Sequoia Capital, turned a $250 million investment into a, a $1.4 or $1.5 billion uh, win. How much do we need to profoundly change the architecture of the economy? Um, do we need new laws? Do we need... Um, do we need new laws around monopolies about how much yes. investors can, inv uh, can, can profit? Uh, we, um, we've had a number of shows about tech monopolies. We had Zephyr teach out on the show, uh, talking about the need to regulate the American economy against monopolies. Uh, David Diane as well. Are you in this camp of, uh, of, of regulating big tech? I am, because I do think we need antitrust law that suits the 21st century. Um, you know, we don't have standard oil anymore, but we do have Amazon. And, you know, in wanting to be the everything store, it's not even the everything store anymore. They're, they're everywhere, you know, between literally cloud services to all sorts of retail. Um, we have so many companies right now that are just performing every function they can possibly, you know, scarf down. And once you have that kind of scale, you can't be competed with. And that's basically why there's always been antitrust baked in, but it hasn't kept up with the times. Uh, we need it in capitalism. There's just kind of no other way to make sure that everybody gets a shot. Um, it's also better for workers. There's monopoly and monopsony in terms of pushing wages down. Uh, we've gotten to a point where we are so polarized um, it's just ugly. And I, you start to wonder at some point, aren't these tech oligarchs going to realize that people need 
to make a decent income just to buy their products. I mean, look right now at the stock market and how crazy it is compared to the reality for most Americans. You know, it's the FANG companies that are floating that. It's completely out of touch with reality. Um, and I think we're going to get a reality check one way or the other. And if we can regulate it before we crash the ship, that would be really nice. Jess, as I said, everyone will, of course, know Nomad Land, and, and most people will know that there's a movie coming out uh, next month, apparently, although it's still not entirely clear how and when we're going to watch it. High-profile uh, movie. Uh, of course, I read about it on Twitter and other of these platforms. Are you? I, I know you were involved in in the in the movie as a consulting uh, editor and as the writer of the original book. Are you concerned that Hollywood might begin to glamorize poverty in America? Can Hollywood treat the seriousness of your book in an appropriate way and show these people respect? I don't mean necessarily in terms of only your book, but generally. Yeah, so uh, I won't lie. I was terrified and I love the team that was going to do it. Uh, Chloe Zhao's work, the writer, her, her previous film, was gorgeous in a bittersweet way that felt very real and didn't feel like it was trying to, uh, you know, deal with stereotypes of the West or a lot of kind of cotton candy. And uh, I feel the same way about Nomadland. So I was a consulting producer. That means, you know, I'm not editing. I'm basically supplying a bunch of research that wasn't in the book, introducing producers to people I met who are in the book. Real and, people. Uh, the, 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 and, and, I, and I understand that many quoted, quote, real people uh, from the book are in the movie themselves. It's not just professional actors and actresses. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the majority of people in the film are what we call first-time actors. And for me, I was at the in Los Angeles and seeing three of the people act for three years on and off as a journalist, Bob Wells, Linda May, and Swanky, seeing them up there at the Q&A, being validated for who they are, being celebrated, really brought me to tears. And I don't think that their struggles were romanticized. A lot of people, some people see the movie and go road trip, but a lot of people think the movie's pretty bleak. And I like that it doesn't tell you how to feel about it, but you know, it doesn't, um, these jobs don't come across as fun. It doesn't come across like it does in the brochures for for workers. So I think they did a good job. Uh, I don't think it's an easy thing to do. Um, I would like to see more cinema like this, um, but I, I was impressed. And I won't, I won't lie, I was scared as well because you know it's a lot of trust to say, you know, what I said to the director in the beginning was, look, I've been gathering ingredients for a very long time. I think I re initially reported on the town of Empire, Nevada, which is in the book and a big place in the film, maybe nine years ago when that company town uh, was shutting down and basically saying, look, I've collected all these ingredients in my pantry. You're a chef. I know you've cooked amazing meals in the past and you know, you're going to take the ingredients you want and, and cook another one here. Um, so that's scary. You don't know if they'll abuse your ingredients or not, but you just have what they've done in the past to go on. And I, I did feel good about it. And also the people I'm, I met and interviewed uh, don't need me to coddle them. They're really, really smart people. And I think if, they smelled something gross, they would have failed pretty quickly. So. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about the film, and I know my daughter is too. Um, 
how do you fit yourself in? I know this is a, a bit of a dumb book question, but I'll ask you anyway. How do you fit yourself into the, the tradition of writing about underprivileged? Um, I, I remember reading La Sommoir by Zola, having that having an impact. Everyone, of course, has been impacted by Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier. There's certainly an element of Steinbeck in your and other work. Do you see yourself part of a tradition? A, a, a long because you're a you're a literary nonfiction writer. You're not really a journalist, although you do journalism. Is that fair? I, th I think that's fair. Um, I'm, I'm loath to compare myself to any of these heroes who I think are utterly amazing. They're all heroes like for I'm... you, Zola, Orwell, and Steinbeck. Oh, you've got them, and also uh, you know Barbara Ehrenreich and Matthew Desmond and so many people. And you know what I love to do is go out there and try to share the world that I see and the world that I immerse in with other people. And that means a lot of showing rather than telling. That means that, you know, I'm not a frequent op-ed writer. I'm not a polemicist that I really want to bring people into a different world, that I'm a bit of a hippie who believes in connective journalism. And I believe that once you have seen the world and the way in which someone else lives, it's a lot harder to disdain them, to hate them. I mean, we tend to forget this, but the idea that there are these people called the homeless that are this giant undifferentiated mass, this is a caste system in America and it's completely insane. I saw a newspaper photo that wasn't captioned a few weeks ago. It just said, homeless man does this. And I'm thinking that man has a name. He had a mother, um, it, it's absolutely nuts. And one of the best things that has happened from the book is people saying, you know, if I see somebody uh, living out of a van now. I don't dismiss them. I wonder what their story is. And maybe that sounds a little mushy, but for me, it's incredibly moving. Yeah. And, and I think that's, amongst other things, the, the wonderful quality of your book. I'm juxtaposing for people just listening, a, a, a photo from the book and a quote, you say, wages and housing costs have diverged so dramatically that for a growing number of Americans, the dream of a middle-class life has gone from difficult to impossible. As I write this, this is, of course, from, uh, from Nomadland uh, three years ago. Uh, there are only a dozen counties and one metro area in America where a full-time minimum wage worker can afford a one-bedroom apartment at fair market rent. You wrote that, of course, just before 2020 and COVID. And I assume three years later, things are even worse now. Oh, it's absolutely worse. I, I don't have the current stats in front of me, but it, it is absolutely worse. Uh, it's funny, I mean, not haha -ha funny, but when I started going out on the road, you weren't reading all these stories yet about everybody living in RVs outside of Silicon Valley because they provide services there, but they can't actually afford to live there. Um, there are so many, you know, people, oh gosh, van life stories were kind of getting big before the book came out. And I always kind of thought that was a houses where you know it's poverty it's minimalism isn't that yeah it has all gotten worse uh that is not what i wished for uh, i wish the book were less relevant today um as opposed to more uh but it's absolutely getting worse and with the coming wave of evictions you know we are kicking that can down the road as the moratoriums get extended but nobody has a solution for all the back rent that is due that people will not be able to pay and I think about 2008, and I think about how we bailed out the banks and the idea that we can bail out these entities that are allegedly too big to fail, but we can't bail out our own individuals who were really doing what the system told them to do and then got whacked by the pandemic. Uh, that to me is disgusting. And it's really an indictment of our values as a country. 
uh, in uh, in Nomadland, uh, Jess, at the end, you give a special shout out to your close friend, Dale Maharaj. Um, I know you both teach at Columbia Journalism School. He has a new book out, Fucked at Birth, which uh, recalibrating the American dream for the 2020s, very similar book in some ways to yours about the, the death of the American dream. Um, in, uh, in Fucked at Birth, as I'm sure you know, Maharaj talks and asks if the 20s or the 30s. He talks about some of those books from uh, the 1920s, like Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, about the Great Depression. Do you see um, our situation today like the 1930s in 2020? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I saw it when I was out on the road reporting Nomadland except the difference was uh, on the road during the Great Depression, people really saw it as an anomaly. They saw it as a moment and they, they kind of had the idea that they would go back and be reabsorbed by the middle class. When in our situation, there really isn't a middle class anymore. And a lot of the people I met weren't seeing this as a temporary setback. They were seeing it as a lifestyle and they were you know, doing it for the long haul, teaching other people how to do it. Uh, and I think that's a difference is basically uh, people feel that income inequality is such right now that it's intractable with the skyrocketing prices of shelter with flat minimum wage. To me, it's absolutely staggering and can't be repeated enough that minimum wage at a federal level is still seven twenty-five an hour. Um, you know, we, we have these problems and people are not advancing creative solutions. I mean, if and you think about that, where if, if we, you and I, or if I was earning minimum wage, I still only have earned $3.50 for this interview, which I think I deserve a little yeah. bit more than that. I, I think you do too. At least $5. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take $5 too. Um, so no, it, it's completely obscene. It's absurd and obscene. It's unimaginable. And again, it reflects this chasm between the elites, I guess, people like you and I on the coasts and, and, and the rest of the world. We had Michael Lind on the show yesterday, uh, Jess. I don't know if you know his work. He's a kind of slightly iconoclastic uh, conservative. He has a new book out called The New Class War. Do we need class war? Uh, what do these, what does the precariat do? Um, do they demonstrate? Do they riot? Do they, should they be storming the Congress? Um, given that many of them are homeless, it's very, uh, again, quote unquote, homeless, living lives on the road. What is the best form of action for the precariat? Well, I, I think it has to be a coalition. And I look at the people at Amazon, for example, who are in UX and white collar jobs who were reaching down to connect with the people in the warehouses and got fired, right? I mean, there was one woman, uh, Oh gosh, Emily or Elizabeth Cunningham, but uh, you know they booted her. And in my mind, having a coalition of people who uh, already kind of have access to the corridors of power and people who are getting completely stepped on uh, is a really valuable thing. And I think Amazon was threatened by that in a way that they haven't been threatened before. I look at you know people unionizing at Google right now. Again, I think as hippie as it sounds, I think collective action is still really, really important. We're in this hyper-individualistic nation where there's this BS idea that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which we know was a phrase that was coined to connote something that is actually impossible. Uh, so I think overcoming that 
individualism, overcoming that, you know, the, the idea that everybody's self-made and we really have nothing to do with each other. It's completely nuts. So, yeah, so to reject, and of course, to reject these self-help books, which suggest that we're all masters of our own fate. And that if only we could discipline ourselves, we can, um, we can save ourselves. Yeah, I mean, the self-help stuff really, it makes me think of Est from the 1960s. I don't know who remembers Est. I'm not actually, I wasn't around during the heyday of Est, but just the idea that it's really all about the frame. It's all about thinking the right way. I mean, you can't think your way out of getting evicted from your house. You can't like positive vibe your way out of having an empty refrigerator. And I get worried when I feel like these materials are almost propaganda used to keep people down. And also they do sell incredibly well, as we know. So I do think it becomes sometimes part of this kind of extraction complex in terms of a way to keep people complacent. And I find that frightening. Uh, finally, Jess, um, as you know, uh, we at LitHub try to recommend other books. Everyone needs to read Nomadland and see it when it comes out in, in the cinema or on your screens in the next month or two. But what else should people be reading uh, in, in these strange times? Uh, to make sense of the world, to keep themselves sane, uh, perhaps to amuse themselves and cheer themselves up since we all seem to be so alone in, in, in the time of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will double your kudos for Fucked at Birth, my best friend's new book. Dale was there when I was actually bolting solar panels onto the van, uh, when I was living out of the van to record my book. book. He yeah. is, he's, a, he's a best friend through and through and seeing him do a road trip style narrative in the time of COVID was incredible and necessary. Uh, obviously, Nickel and Dime by Barbara Ehrenreich is a book I very much admire. Um, she is more of an op-ed style writer than I am in terms of this is what we need, this is how we do it. Uh, but gosh, she had guts and I remember listening to her when I was in the van and she said that she drew the line at living out of a vehicle and I said, oh crap, what have I done? Uh, Evicted by Matthew Desmond is amazing. So rare is it for us to see somebody who's a sociologist and academic and also such a gifted writer and can bring all that together into a book like Evicted, which did win the Pulitzer Prize. Um, I'm trying to get back into fiction and poetry because I feel like we need it all these times. I just bought two books and I haven't read them yet, but they both come very highly recommended. One is The Soul of an Octopus, which uh, again, going to nature, maybe it's a little escapist. And the other is a book of poetry by Mary Oliver. So I, I don't know that's quite in line with what we're talking about, but it's my little coffee break. Well, Jessica uh, Bruder, it's a real honor uh, to have you on the show. And I wish you a very happy and above all else, healthy 2021 to you and your family. And perhaps you'll come back on the show sometime later in the year to talk about the movie and the impact it will have on getting other people to see through the quote unquote share in economy. Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.